we are hoping to show you just what is possible out there in our strange and wondrous world. One of the dogs started to howl. Almost immediately, all 400 dogs that were there started to howl along with it. We travel for business. We travel for pleasure. The conditions can change so quickly, and it became very challenging to maneuver that kayak. We travel to expand our minds. Of course, the most dangerous animal in Africa is the hippo. More people are killed by hippos than anything else. Whether it's one state over. I was looking for a longer treatment, like 90 days, six months, and my treatment plan was to go hike the Appalachian Trail. Or halfway around the globe this fantastic high desert. You watch the sky at night, so you just see the Milky Way and shooting stars. If the world's a book, why only read one page? I'm Elizabeth Hill, and you're listening to a WAMC Northeast Public Radio production. This is Postcards from the Road. Setting out with two fellow kayakers, Darcy Gector celebrated her 35th birthday on a 148-day kayaking journey paddling the Amazon River. In her book, Amazon Woman, Facing Fears, Chasing Dreams, and a quest to kayak the largest river from source to sea, she recounts her heart-pounding adventure. Gector now leads expeditions in the continental U.S., Alaska, Ecuador, Bhutan, Nepal, and Kenya. She is also a speaker with the Aspen Center for Environmental Studies and the Colorado Whitewater Association. Gector says her kayaking career began following high school shortly after becoming a raft guide. All the people that worked there, you know, they were really cool in my mind. And I was 18 and they were all like mid-20s and they were all kayakers. And so at that time, I didn't really have a huge desire to be a kayaker, but I wanted to hang out with them. So I was like, I guess I have to start kayaking. And they, uh, they would let me go with them, but they weren't overly interested in teaching me anything. So I just borrowed a bunch of gear and we'd go to our local class three run and I would swim every single time because I didn't know how to roll. I didn't really have any kayaking skills at all. But for some reason, my brain thought that, that was sort of a fun sport. And I eventually uh, learned how to roll and got better skills. And then, of course, it was a lot more enjoyable. What brought you down to Ecuador? After my first year of kayaking, um, I was going to Skidmore College and I transferred to Montana State in the middle of winter. And I met a guy named Adam there who said, hey, let's skip fall semester and go kayaking in Nepal. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. So I went to Nepal with Adam, but I was still quite bad at kayaking and had a hard time and was swimming a lot. But I just saw how many really cool rivers there were in Nepal. So it was a few years later and I had bought a ticket to go back um, and I was going to go by myself. And that's when the Maoist insurgency started up again. So I was sort of debating, like, hey, do I go by myself? I don't know if this is a good idea. And I was talking to some friends and they said, well, we're going kayaking in Ecuador. So why don't you just switch your ticket and come? And I literally didn't know where Ecuador was. I had to look on a map, but I thought, ah, oh, this probably sounds like a safer idea yeah. than going to Nepal by myself. So I changed my ticket and came here for six weeks. And um, I was actually a customer of Small World Adventures, which is the kayaking company that I now am an owner of. So that's how I met those guys and traveled around Ecuador a lot because I had six weeks and just really fell in love with it. And the people here are really awesome. And friendly. And I think I was 21 at the time. And it just was like a really great, comfortable traveling experience, even though I was clueless and didn't know what I was doing. But the people here were so friendly and made it really nice and easy on me. 
So how long were you living in Ecuador until you realized that this was something you wanted to do? You wanted to go from source to sea on the Amazon. That's a whole nother story because the original idea was not mine. Uh, it was a guy, a British guy named David Midgley, and he is a brilliant computer programmer and lives in London, but he was having, I guess you would probably call it a midlife crisis. And um, he thought, man, I'm going to waste my life sitting behind this desk. I need to do one big thing. And he, he thought about climbing Everest, but he's like, nah, too many people have done that. He thought about sailing around the world. And then somehow he came across a story about the Amazon River and he started doing some research and he realized that more people had walked on the moon than had descended the Amazon River from source to sea. And he realized that nobody had kayaked the entire thing. And so he decided he would do that. And he, at that point, he had never kayaked before and he'd never gone camping before. And he really was the most unprepared that a person could possibly be. But we met him, he goes by Midge. So we met Midge because he started coming to Ecuador to train to become a class five kayaker because there's class five whitewater at the headwaters of the Amazon. And he knew that he needed to get a lot of training and experience if he was going to survive the whitewater. So that's how we met Midge. And he came to Small World for eight years, I guess. And sometimes he'd stay for two weeks, sometimes he'd stay for two months and he was just training to uh, try to get good enough for this. And then he eventually invited me and Don, who's my partner, to come help him for the whitewater. And, you know, that sounded great. He was going to pay for everything and we'd have this great whitewater adventure in Peru. And then one night Don said to me like, hey, Darcy, no woman has ever kayaked the Amazon. Are you really going to be okay with this idea of kayaking all the whitewater? and then just leaving and letting Midge finish on his on his own. And I was a little bit embarrassed because like doing the entire river hadn't occurred to me. But once Don said that, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm definitely not going to be okay with that. We better do the whole river. And then I think Don, that's probably his biggest regret in life at this point is mentioning that because ever since I decided I wanted to do it, he kept saying, no, are you sure? You better think this through. Like, this is going to be a big commitment a long time. And he did end up doing it with us, obviously, but um, he wasn't ever all that happy about it. So can you give me a brief introduction to the whitewater class system? Yeah, so um, it goes from class one to class six. For class one, I mean, it, it is moving water, but it's pretty flat and nothing's going on. And Wikipedia says skill level required for class one is none. So basically anyone, like any kid with an inner two, whatever, can jump on class one. And then as you go up the scale, like class two, you know, there's going to be some obstacles, some rocks or some waves or some hydraulics that you have to maneuver around. But still, you can have a very low skill level and still be okay. Class three, um, the river gets more complicated and the scale also takes into account consequences. So if you have, you know, if the consequences start to get a little bit higher, then it will get a class three rating. But still in class three, you can typically mess up. You can swim from your kayak and not nothing too bad is gonna happen to you. Um, class four, both the difficulty of the river and the consequences start to climb. And most people say you need to be quite experienced to navigate class four. You know, you need to have a lot of skills. You need to be able to perform a combat role. And that means, you know, riding your kayak back upright if you've tipped over accidentally. 
And then when you get into class five, um, the rapids are really difficult and also the consequences are quite bad. So you can make small mistakes in class five, but if you make one big mistake or a series of small mistakes, the consequences are gonna be quite extreme, You know, maybe even possibly death. So class five, you need to have expert skills. You also need to be very mentally strong because even a kayaker with really good skills, if they start to panic, you know, that can right. be pretty disastrous on the river. And the scale does go all the way up to class six, but most people consider class six rapids to be unrunnable. And as people are pushing the sport and progressing, a lot of class six rapids are getting run, but usually once somebody runs a class six rapid, it then becomes class five plus because they've proved that it can be run. So what did you do personally to prepare yourself mentally and physically mm -hmm. for this journey? Um, the physical part was pretty easy because my life is sort of good training for stuff like this. You know, when we're in Ecuador, we, we run week-long trips, but they're back-to-back, -back, so we kayak every day. We kayak about 130 days in a row every winter, so we're physically very fit. And, you know, even though we're not kayaking class five every day, you know, just being on the water every day is really good training for feeling comfortable in the boat, on the river, and running hard white water. Um, we also do a lot of logistics down here, and dealing with logistics in South America is just a lot different than North America because things run on a different time frame down here. So I think it was really good practice, you know, spending so much time in South America already. So I was prepared for you know, when someone says they'll be there at 10, they really probably actually will be there at three or four and, you know, that sort of thing. But one thing I realized on the journey that I hadn't prepared for was like the the mental side of the flat water, actually. The white water, I kind of knew what I was getting myself into there and was pretty well prepared for that. But the flat water, you know, I'm not the most patient person in the world and I didn't work on that enough before going on the journey. So I was constantly losing my patience with Midge because he didn't paddle as fast as I wanted him to or as long as I wanted him to. And yeah, if I was going to do it again, I would definitely do uh, a lot more mental training in that regard. The whole thing took us 148 days. And for the whitewater part, a lot of it was pretty remote. And so every now and then, like we could get to a town and resupply with food. But we had to do a lot of pre-planning with our food. Like we brought 50 days worth of dehydrated meals to Peru with us. And we like package up, you know, a couple days worth of food in a little box and leave all these boxes with a guy in town that we had found who was willing to drive them to these various access points in the river, you know, and it might just be like a random bridge in the middle of nowhere. And we'd have to try to guess, okay, how many days will it take us to get to this bridge? What time should we meet you? And so that that was challenging and also things like importing. So we used whitewater kayaks for the whitewater and that was the first 25 days. Okay. And then we switched into sea kayaks for the flat water. And so we had to import sea kayaks into Peru and then also get them transported to where the flat water started. And all that kind of stuff, you know, honestly took up more time and energy than some of the paddling did. Because once we were paddling on the river, that's what we all knew and we were comfortable with, and it was really kind of relaxing to shove off in the morning and put all the other stuff behind us and just focus on running the running the rapids. But then every night at camp, we'd be on the satellite phone trying to coordinate like 
what time is the food drop going to happen? How is the importation going of the sea kayaks? And those kinds of things were definitely challenging. And then I would say our next biggest challenge was getting along with each other, which I think oh, we really? did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so Midge, again, being a brilliant computer-minded person, he did a lot of research before this trip, and he learned that teams of three are the most successful on long expeditions. And um, almost all other numbers, the teams break apart, the expedition fails, or only one or two members ends up finishing the expedition because of fighting and stuff. And so he stuck with a group of three, and he was obviously taking a risk, inviting a couple along, but he thought our team of three would make it. And, and we did, which is saying a lot. We're one of the few expeditions of this length that have started and finished with all the original team members. But still, you know, when you're stuck with anyone for 148 days, 24 hours a day, like you're gonna it's a lot. have some annoyances. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And so I think uh, we we did pretty well overall. And it's definitely a testament to all of us that we stayed together. But it wasn't easy. That's for sure. What type of cultural challenges did you come across? Well, I guess a couple cultural challenges. We um, right where the flat water started is a part of Peru that the locals call the red zone. And it's really notoriously dangerous because um, there's a group of indigenous people that live there called the Ashanika. And they basically, anyone who comes into their territory has done bad things to them, you know, starting with the Franciscan missionaries who were trying to convert them. And then they pretty quickly realized that they couldn't convert the adults. So they took away all the children and moved them to these remote camps up in the mountains to try to indoctrinate them with the religion and get them away from their strong culture at home. And then there were, you know, the rubber boom happened. And, you know, that stuff's kind of distant memory at this point. But more recently, the the Shining Path terrorist, which the Shining Path was like a a Maoist group also, and they were, they caused what everybody calls now Peru's civil war. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to be like leading this uprising of the poor. But uh, what ended up happening, their movement pretty quickly fell apart and they ended up getting pushed into the jungle region regions where the Ashanika live. And they really were horrible to the Ashanika people. And they would like put them in labor camps and they ended up killing like 10,000 Ashanika during this Shining Path Civil War. And that that was happening in the 1980s and 1990s. So a lot of the people lived through it. And this right. is, you know, very recent and very real for them. And nowadays there's uh, drug traffickers, there's illegal loggers, and the government wants to put dams on their river. So still to these people, like anybody that comes in as an outsider is kind of up to no good. Right. And so that was a big challenge for us is trying to convince them that we were tourists because there really is no tourism in this region because it's quite dangerous. Um, and that we just wanted to pass through. And we did, we worked with some people in Lima before the trip and we got permission letters from the various different indigenous groups that kind of they had organized along the river. So we got permissions from all these different groups but it was still, um, you know, it was still, we had a few tense situations because we had certain towns that we had to check in at right. and those we knew about, but still some other villages wanted to stop and, and talk to us. And 
it, we ended up having only good experiences with these people, but a couple miscommunications, um, a couple times we didn't stop when they wanted us to stop. And we at one point got lectured by a group of indigenous people about how they have to protect the children. And the right. chief of this village kind of lectured us about all the dangers that that they face on a regular basis. And then um, we had a, a man named Cesar traveling with us and he was a local and he was supposed to be kind of our our cultural interpreter, I guess, if you will. And the finally, after these guys lectured us, they said, well, we're not mad at you because you, you know, you're foreigners and you don't understand what's going on here. So, you know, you guys can go, but your guide Cesar, like he should have known better. So we're gonna punish him. And then, of course, the three of us are sort of panicking because there had been uh, six other tourists had gone through this area like in the past decade and two of them were murdered and one of them was shot but survived. And so we're just thinking, like, oh, God, they're going to kill Cesar. But after a few minutes, the chief said, OK, your punishment is to do 50 push-ups. <laughs> and it was just this really crazy experience because we're in like full panic mode. And then he kind of makes this joke. And we're like, okay, do we laugh? Is this real? Is this really happening? But then, yes, he, they did make him get down and do his 50 push-ups and then let us all go, which was an awesome outcome, but we weren't so sure how it was going to end for a while. So after this 148 days, what did it feel like to reach the sea? Um, it was sort of disappointing, honestly. You know, we were all, it was like, we had been looking forward to this for so long. And uh, the last couple months were really challenging, both in terms of our group fighting and also we were, um, the tides come up the Amazon River like 800 miles and it's also really windy by this point. So we were constantly, like if we were going, you know, three miles an hour, that was a really good pace at the end. So we were so focused on making it and we finally got there and all of us had, we, we were celebrating, we were happy, we we're on this secluded white sand beach. It was sort of a perfect ending visually, but all of us sort of sat there and we're like, oh, what are we gonna do tomorrow? <laughs> you know, our lives had been like so dictated by this one goal for five months. And then all of a sudden it was just like, oh, it's all over, now what? You are now the first and only woman to kayak the Amazon from source to sea, besides confirming that you are in fact a badass. <laughs> Um, what did you learn from this journey? So when I said yes to the trip, I didn't have any big expectations or thought, you know, as I said, Don just sort of threw it out there and said, yeah, we should do the whole thing. But then between saying yes to the trip and doing the trip, um, we had sold our business to a client of ours who like our business wasn't for sale, but we had this client who was looking to change his life and <clears throat> he just offered to buy it. So we said yes. And then it turned out we didn't get along that well in a business setting. So he ended up actually firing me, but Don kind of came with the package. And so our lives were kind of upended right before the trip happened. And so my expectations for the journey sort of were developing the whole time. And I kind of thought, I guess I've for a long time felt, I don't know if guilty is the right word about my lifestyle, but me and Don live a really fun life and our business is whitewater kayaking. And when we're not doing it for work, we're usually doing it for fun. 
and we travel a lot and we don't really make a whole lot of money, but we don't have much expenses either. You know, we don't own a home, but also we don't have any retirement savings. And there was a lot of things that were sort of making me worried or feeling bad that I wasn't doing what I had been supposed to be doing all along. So I started thinking like, okay, maybe this can be our last big adventure and we'll be now satisfied to go on and make some normal lives for ourselves. And so I really tried to make the journey about that. And so I would try to paddle along and be like, Don, what kind of normal job do you want to get when this is all over? And he was number one, kind of mad at me for getting him fired. He was kind of mad at me for making him kayak four months of flat water. And then me asking him these questions really didn't go over all that well. And uh, he sort of had the feeling like, I'm. what am I prepared to do in life besides be a kayak guide? And now Darcy, you have ruined that for me. And now you're going to try to force me to what, like be a nurse? I don't, you know, what do you want me to do? And uh, so that, that plan didn't work out so well. But one thing that I did learn or realize on the trip was, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't get to that beach feeling like, oh yeah, all my adventurous desires are now satisfied. Yay, I can move on and go get an office job. Like I definitely didn't feel like that. And despite all the bad times we had on the on the trip, I really came away feeling sort of reinforced in my lifestyle, thinking I do want to keep living this way and I'm just going to have to figure out a way to mentally be okay with it. Do you have any advice for women across not just our hemisphere, but across the globe on achieving what they set their sights on? Yeah, I think it, it can be quite difficult. You know, I'm, I'm a woman and I'm small and like 5'4 and 120 pounds. And, and all my life, I've wanted to do things that guys do or tall girls do. And, you know, I just kind of constantly heard like, no, you can't play volleyball. You can't play basketball. You, how are you going to pick up your kayak? You're so little. And I think it's really easy. I think probably women hear that in all walks of life. You know, you can't be CEO or you can't do this or that. And it's sort of the easy thing to do is listen to all those people. You know, you start to feel like, well, if the majority of people are saying this, it must be true. And so I think the hardest thing is to believe in yourself and, you know, try to ignore people that are telling you no, you know, find some people that can support you, that can believe in your goals and just know you're probably, it's going to be a hard road. But even if you fail, it's worth trying because you don't want to wake up someday and say, damn, I really wish I hadn't listened to all those people that were telling me no, I wish I had just gone for it. And for me, it's so much better to, to try, you know, I've failed so many times and that that can get you down and that can be a bummer but you learn something every time you fail and in a way it can empower you to like okay well there i just tried one thing and it didn't work out now i'm gonna go back to the drawing board and try this again and so for me the biggest advice is listen to yourself more than anyone else if you believe you can do it you can probably do it what's next so yeah, Don and I have been talking about this and probably with the book coming out, lots of people were going to ask what's next. And um, we were really lucky after the Amazon trip, we, uh, because we didn't have a job anymore, we had some free time. And I ended up being able to achieve a couple of my personal big kayaking goals, which were to do a kayaking trip in Siberia and Russia and kayak the Boshkosh River, where 
up on the cliff, they have uh, a book kind of in this little alcove in the cliff called the Book of Legends. And, you know, everybody that kayaks the river go, hikes up there and writes their name in the Book of Legends. And when I first started kayaking, I heard about this and I just thought, wow, the Book of Legends, that sounds so cool. So this has been something I'd wanted to do for a long time. And we went and we got to do that. And then we also kayaked the Grand Canyon of the Stikine in northern British Columbia, which had also been like a more than decade long goal of mine. So those two things were really awesome. And and then the last couple of years, I've been really focusing on the book, which has been a crazy adventure in itself. But so Don and I were recently talking about what is our next adventure. And um, I've had a recent shoulder surgery, so I've been getting into trail running and I thought, let's do like a really big running adventure. I was like running around the world, Don, that would be amazing. We could see so many countries. And yeah. he looked at me and he got very serious and he said, Darcy, not a f chance. <laughs> <laughs> so then we, uh, we started brainstorming things that we would both enjoy. And uh, neither of us have been to the continent of Antarctica. And so our next plan is we're going to go kayak the longest river in Antarctica, which is the Onyx River. And it's 20 miles long, but we figure it'll be a whole journey just exploring that continent. We've been speaking with author and kayaker Darcy Gachter about her book, Amazon Woman, Facing Fears, Chasing Dreams, and a Quest to Kayak the Largest River from Source to Sea. Published by Pegasus. Postcards from the Road is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, Elizabeth Hill. As always, if you like what you hear, subscribe on your audio app of choice. Visit wamcpodcasts.org for more information. If you would like to share your travel story with postcards, email us at postcards at wamc.org.